0: to the AIAC podcast. If you don't know me by now, you'll never know. And this is Africa as a Country's weekly talk and interview show on politics on the globe from an African perspective, as well as analyses of events and current affairs on the African continent from a left perspective. If you missed our episode last week, do check it out. It was a fantastic interview with the Brazilian sociologist Sabrina Fernandes on Lula's new presidency, what we can expect, what challenges he might face, as well as what his program for transforming not only Brazil, but Latin America might be. You can find that wherever you listen to your podcasts. And wherever you listen to your podcasts, make sure that you subscribe. Give us feedback. Also, tell us what works, what doesn't. And most importantly head over to africasacountry.com to check out new writing on politics and culture in africa so this episode is a very exciting one as i'm sure some of you know on the 25th of february africa's largest democracy and economy will elect its president and parliamentary representatives this will be nigeria's seventh electoral cycle since the country returned to civilian rule in 1999 and in its fourth republic, the People's Democratic Party has won every multi-party contest until 2015, when the All Progressives Congress, led by incumbent Muhammadu Buhari, clinched two successive terms, which have ended. Bearing the party flag now in this election is Bola Tinubu, the former governor of Lagos State, and for the PDP is Atiku Abubaka, who served as Olusogun Obasandro's vice president from 1999 until 2007 but it's not these veterans capturing hearts and minds instead it's peter obi a wealthy businessman and ex-governor of a number of states causing a stir initially obi intended to compete for the pdp nomination but crossed the floor to the labor party after being frustrated with the pdp's primary process His move to the Labour Party, which was hitherto a relatively unknown social democratic platform, is viewed by many as a bold anti-establishment move. Young Nigerians are attracted to his seeming outsider image, his good governance politics, and his entrepreneurial background, which exemplifies the dream of upward mobility, which evades many young Nigerians and indeed many Africans. And Obi has cultivated a cult following in turn, with many of his fans dubbing themselves Obedience well can obi really transform nigeria's political and economic system which is marred by staggering inequality regional ethno-linguistic divides and corruption or is his politics vacuous and empty based on vague promises to turn things around and how does the nigerian left feature in all of this What of the initiatives born from the mass mobilizations of the mid-2010 such as occupy nigeria and the take it back movement and above all end sars on this episode I'm joined by the host of an exciting new podcast on Nigerian politics, which is called The Nigerian Scam, to discuss the coming election and possible outcomes. I'm talking about Saeed Husseini and OAG. Said is a contributing editor at Africa as a Country who lives and works in Lagos, Nigeria, and is currently wrapping up a fellowship at the University of Lagos. And OAG is a postgraduate degree in food security and is a political commentator with great interest in revolutionary thoughts in and out of the African continent. So here's my interview with Said and OAG. Both of you, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you very much for having us. Great to be here, man. So, I mean, for our, for our listeners who may not be as clued into Nigerian politics, could you just give us a sense of the upcoming election? What does the electoral field look like who's running which political parties do they belong to and in that landscape who are the front runners who are the possible underperformers who are the underdogs and who would you say is the left candidate in this election Mm -hmm. and I, i think that that question is going to be perhaps the the, the most troublesome one for, for this conversation, but to start us off about laying that foundation.
1: Nice. Uh, Oiji, should I go or do you want to... Yeah, it
0: yeah, go, go, go.
2: Then I'll I, you know add okay. a bit more things to it.
1: Okay. Um, I think the context that's very interesting to set in understanding this election is um, just to start out by saying that when we, the campaign season opened off, I think sometime in October last year, it really looked like it was going to be quite a boring race um, because the parties were kind of, the main parties, the All Progressive Congress, which is governing at the federal level and the People's Democratic Party, which used to be the governing party in Nigeria till so they lost in 2015, were heading towards fairly predictable seeming primaries in which, the most ridiculous outcome, the most boring outcome, you know the wealthiest people in either party were going to win. So it's the kind of standard political prim- party primary, in, I guess, um, our current era of, of kind of oligarchic democracy, right? Um, so this is what we ended up with at the end of the summer last year. Um, Tinubu, who's the former governor of Lagos um, and a big time kind of political godfather in in, in, in Nigeria, sort of oligarch who backs other candidates, um, had set out to be the APC uh, flag bearer and achieved this after um, a very expensive, (laughs) by all indication, um, electoral primary. And then on the PDP side, the candidate from the last election, the 2019 flag bearer for PDP, Alhaji Atiku Abubakar, who used to be Nigeria's vice president under Abbasenjo, won again as the PDP candidate. Um, But shortly thereafter, I guess the the campaign became slightly more interesting um, because part of the issue with the PDP primary was that it had become quite acrimonious, um, at least because of this, Arrangement that we refer to as zoning in Nigeria, uh, which I mean some as the country listeners, will be familiar with. But basically, it's a kind of power-sharing or rotational agreement that has it that um, you know, if you've had a Muslim northern president for mm-hmm. eight years, as we've currently had, then power is meant to rotate to the south, and you know, basically, um, Christian. Uh, southern pres- uh, candidates are supposed to then be eligible.
0: Um, mm. is, is that but, something, yeah. is this a policy that is exists at the federal level or mm. is it at the discretion of political parties?
1: Yeah, more the latter. So it's actually not a, a, a law or certainly not something constitutionally binding. Um, but it's something that parties have just kind of informally taken on. And PDP in particular, I think PDP actually does have it in its constitution um but parties sort of informally respect this or as supposed to and when they don't you can have these very acrimonious primaries um or you can have candidates you know using this as an excuse to to kind of jump ship from one party to the other so this is pretty much what happened at the PDP primary and i mean i guess some more some important context even prior to the primary that i'm sure will come up as we go further into the conversation, is that pressure had been building up over the course of the last two, three years at least for the main parties to respect zoning, right? So there was a major meeting of Southern governors, like a a forum that hasn't really existed. It's a forum for governors from the Southern states across parties. And they met and put out this statement. um, I think that was 2021 saying, demanding really that their parties respect zoning. So um, when the PDP held its primaries and Atiku, who's a Northern Muslim, won, um, this caused a lot of fracas amongst the Southern power brokers in the PDP, um, the most significant of whom was Atiku's former vice presidential candidate in 2019, Peter Obi. Um, And towards the primary, actually before it even happened, Peter Obi had um already declared that you know not sort of citing zoning explicitly but saying there's an issue of injustice in the party that's pushing him out and also saying that the party primaries were going to be contested in cash terms and he wasn't really to play, ready to play that game um which of course begs the question you know maybe wow um, did he not see that coming before or is, is, was that a game he was unfamiliar with previously but leaving that aside these are the reasons he put down, an, he walked out of the PDP at that stage and joined the Labour Party, um, which had been a previously, let's say, electorally marginal party at the the national level. Um, But with the arrival of a major national politician and his own entourage, um, it seemed to spark a new kind of energy in the electoral cycle, you know, raising the possibility that a third party, you know, aside from the two major ones that have um, dominated national electoral context, um, you know in the past couple of decades, could actually challenge the two main parties. Um, and yeah, I mean, zoning is a huge part of this debate. Peter Obi is um, the Labour Party candidate, the only Southern Christian candidate on the ballot amongst the three major ones, right, with the first being Tenugu who's Southern but Muslim, um, and then Atiku who's also Muslim and Northern. So there's a kind of perception that we've already had a Muslim president Buhari for the past eight years, and so power should shift to the South, right? So that kind of advantages OB um, to the extent that people actually kind of take this seriously when they vote. And I think there is a demographic that does. But I mean, maybe more important than that, or at least as important is that since NSARS and maybe even prior to that, there had been quite a bit of youth kind of disenchantment. And I mean, I use youth in scare quotes because, yeah, who counts as youth and the extent to which this is representative of people of of generation in totality is, of course, questionable. But um, suffice it to say there was a narrative and has been around this kind of youth disenchantment with the political status quo. Some of it obviously anchored in reality, right? Um, And Peter O.B. has really appealed to that. Firstly, I think just by virtue of being the youngest candidate on the ballot, I mean, he's not all that young, he's 61, but relative to 70-year-old Tinubu and I think 70-something-year-old Atiku, he seemed like a slightly preferable choice. And then he's youthful, you know, relative to these guys as well, insofar as he doesn't stagger around and slur his words like the others do. And also because he has been just much more conversant with social media style messaging and has really built quite a um, audible, let's say, quite a um, pronounced social media presence with like, very strong campaigning on twitter and that sort of thing so i mean i think the arrival will be kind of changed the landscape somewhat and made the election slightly less seemingly predictable than um it was shaping out to be by summer of last year
2: Oh, A.G., anything you want to add? Oh, yeah. Um, to that uh, background that uh, Sahid has given, we'll, we'll see that um, the ruling class in Nigeria has, again, proven itself to be very, very uh, adaptable to mm. what we have on ground, you know, in terms of always coughing up or, you know, serving seeming um, messiahs in the times of the highest points of crisis and, you know, with the configuration that we have with, um you know, OB coming up now, you'd see that he's not fundamentally different from, you know, the other guys, which um, are Tenobu and Atiku, because he was Atiku's running mate um, some years back, you know, so the thing that, that might have changed overnight would, would I'll, I'll find that, you know, very uh mm-hmm. <laughs> very funny you know and then again in his policies and what he calls his manifesto or what he's been saying you know the same neoliberal ideas so we really aren't seeing any form of fundamental change rather we're just can, kind of seeing things like personnel changes you know which again we'll see is, um and it's like an attempt of the owners of capital to save themselves you know from the crisis that they've um, fermented on the ground you know so the political system and the political configurations of this um uh, elections on ground really isn't offering anything too mm. different aside from you know the other in um, quote, fringe parties that you know we might be having because you mentioned people that we might think are the left candidates because i've been trying to pay more attention to The guys that are on the fringe, because you know, when money has dominated the capital, um, money has dominated the electoral space, then you have to do the groundwork of putting your x ray glasses on and fishing out who are the guys that are saying the things that we want to hear. Of course, we can't ignore the presidential candidate of the AAC, Mm. which is a show rare. We can't ignore that. We can't. Then there's this guy that's caught my eyes too. His name is Adibaya for SDP the yeah. guy speaks yeah he speaks the real deal like so these guys are the guys that i have my eyes on you know and i feel that you know there's this synergy you know between sure and the guy but you know of course they are from different political parties then with the merger with prp again because they've got kola abiela that's MK abiela's son as the presidential candidate of the prp but prp has um like two factions there's, there's the Musa faction that has the revolutionary you know, he um, like um, culture, you know, and they've merged with AAC. So there are a lot of things going on at outside of the capitalist realm in the political in the political um, season that we're in. You know, that's worth paying attention to. And of course, as people that are trying to educate and open new frontiers and discourse in political um, space, we have to highlight the efforts that. That are going on um, in these areas. So those are the things that I feel might just be a top part of what Saeed, Saeed has mm-hmm. Said has mm-hmm.
0: said. I want to I want to talk in a moment about the AAC and SDP and what the strategy for the Nigerian left is entering into the selection. But before that, to talk a little bit more about Obi, what explains his appeal? I think you were both beginning to answer that question, but I think it's it's phenomenal the extent to which he's managed to captivate young Nigerians. And Sayed. I think your, your cautious use of that word is, is warranted because who counts as a young Nigerian? What is the demographic and class makeup of, of that grouping? Um, but the extent even to which the personality cult has emerged around him, with his followers calling themselves um obedience um without any hesitation <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> un-ironically, yeah unironically yeah exactly <laughs> and, and one wonders you know what was what was the struggle uh the anti-colonial struggle for but um <laughs> you know like it's surprising just the extent also to which he's uh been kind of lapped up as mm-hmm. as a candidate for this and and um, Oag, you're talking about how the ruling class is is dynamic and, and adaptive. And uh, just last week, Olusogun uh, Obasanjo came out endorsing Obi, mm. uh, which uh, was surprising because uh, Atiku was his former vice president. And yeah. So, you know what what explains his appeal, and it's it's even surprising how the mainstream press kind of portrays mm-hmm. him. As this, outsider um, which he is anything but having been uh, (laughs) been a number of states for for more than a decade the fact Mm -hmm. that he's a wealthy businessman so there's almost there's a there's just a kind of mythology that developing around him which cuts against Mm -hmm. the reality of his politics and his history Um, and that consensus is just quickly building that this is the person to win this does it? Why is there that eagerness for yes. OBE to, to be the vector?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can take a stab um, before OG jumps in, but I think that's one of the key questions of the electoral cycle. Um, and I think in laying out the context, you already point to some of the contradictions inherent in that appeal. I mean, it's important to point out that Peter O B has united a very paradoxical contradiction, I mean, coalition in in some respects, right? Um, Because we have on the one hand, people like Obasanjo, you know, some of the most establishment people, you could say, um, in Nigerian politics, somebody who had been president twice, you know, a military dictator, um, and the kind of founding president of Nigeria's current fourth Republic. endorsing PTOB. And on the other hand, you have um, quite a, a support base coming out of NSARS, actually, some of the um, sort of online personalities that um, played a key role in mobilizing people online around NSARS, backing him. We're talking about people like Reno Oduola, people like Aisha Yusufu, um, you know, who are, who are very active during NSARS, backing the OB, um, movement and calling themselves obedience, um, as you um, pointed to. And so, I mean, that's just, I think, the sort of share contrast in the kind of coalition behind them. And then, you know, there's also the kind of traditional, um, let's say, uh, leaders of Nigeria's Labour Party, um, some of whom are unionists, actually. Um, is is important to note. Um, so you can see that it's, it's quite a different set of, a diverse set of characters that have come behind the thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think a, a strong current in that coalition is, is you know, the set of people that um, I think the Nigerian media and some foreign media have been referring to as youth. Um, and I think there is, is, it's fair to say that amongst the kind of, some demographics who participated quite strongly in NSARS right particularly kind of urban educated fairly online young people there is quite a bit of support for for PTOB um, and even there there's a bit of an irony because of course NSARS sort of um, was widely seen as leaderless you know um, so to go from that last you know two years ago to you know, not only having a kind of supreme leader, but calling yourself by his name is quite a journey. And um, I think I would leave the full explanation for how that transition has occurred to people with more psychoanalytic uh, skills, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) What I would say is is that um, there clearly is A lot of disenchantment with the Buhari um, regime, right? Buhari administration. And, you know, it was likely that an opposition candidate was going to benefit from, you know, a large group of uh, particularly urban um, youth who kind of suffered the brunt of a lot of his policies. Um, And I think there's an added aspect of a kind of, you know, desire to have something very different seeming from a kind of Northern former military, uh, you know, president, right? So Mm -hmm. in that sense, amongst the mainstream candidates, Obi is is definitely the furthest thing away from a Buhari type figure on the personality level. Um, But I guess, yeah, that just emphasizes the extent to which for, you know, a lot of voters, personality still has a huge influence on the kind of you know, decisions they make and the the candidates that they choose to support over and against you know maybe more concrete questions around what the person actually will deliver. Um, which if you consider seems to suggest that there's very little of a difference actually. Um, I guess the final thing I'll say is to emphasize you know part of what I was saying earlier that there you know amongst the characteristics that are driving this kind of OB support is the question of zoning, you know, um, and, and identity, uh, which plays a huge role in Nigerian politics, you know, as elsewhere. And, you know, because of this kind of power sharing agreement or rotational agreement, we are often in a situation, basically at the end of any political tenure, at the end of any sort of zoning term, where the demand really built up for, you know, different parts of the country to govern, so to speak. Of course, the fact is, it's not that part of a country governing, but an elite from that part of the country, often governing in a very narrow way. But, you know, that demand builds up. Um, And when it does, I mean, it often kind of settles on a figure that's considered an outsider, that's considered you know, often built up into a kind of moralistic sort of image of absolute piety. Um, and, you know, the first, the, the the newest generation of voters who have just entered into the electoral are, the, are often the most swept up in that whole process. So mm. I say that to say we've kind of been here before. I mean, Buhari was cast in very much the same light when he first arrived on the or, you know, when, when he sort of ran the race that seemed most viable in 2015. Again, you know, he was seen as a kind of pious outsider. Again, he was coming, you know, sort of pitching, you know, making his case uh, right after a major protest that involved, you know, talking about the Occupy 2012 protest that involved this massive mobilization, both online and offline of urban youth. And again, we were at the point in time where the zoning question was um, in crisis. Jonathan, president at the time, um, was about to violate the zoning principle by trying to seek re-election. So it seems like there's a kind of cycle that's um, built into to Nigerian electoral politics that has, I think, been partially institutionalized by this zoning arrangement. Um, that seems to throw up a kind of messianic figure every 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 now and then who kind of is overloaded with people's expectations for for change despite the fact that the person in practice actually does represent fairly institutional fairly kind of established ways of doing politics and certainly hardly even promises you know to to make things different in practical terms
2: mm. Yeah, just just to add to that, you know, is once again the testament to how enshrined the ruling class in Nigeria, you know, how they are and how they control the system. Because he said something that that said something about the 2012, you know, and spitting up of Buhari as someone to take over from, you know, a uh, system that's in crisis. Buhari came as that messianic figure. Now we're having Obi as the same person. However, a deeper look at what Ob stands for, you know, and you don't even need to take that deeper look. You have to just check out the Pandora Papers. You have to check out a lot of allegations against this man, you know, and to see that what he has tried to do or what he did during his time. You know, he's sort of like the better, in quote, version of the guys that we have here. And what we, what we end up having is someone that deepens the crisis. Because once there's no fundamental change, we're back with someone that tries to maintain or actually maintains the system with the contradictions of the system getting worse over time. Buhari came as that Messianic figure, didn't do any fundamental change, and he maintained the contradictions and the country is bleeding from all parts of its, you know, anatomy, if I could use that word now, you know. So, this is another cycle of that game that's going on now. And this is Obi being spat up by that system. The ruling class are safe with Obi. He has not made any, you know, um, threatening, you know, or any sort of, um, let's say, combative statement Mm -hmm. or taking any combative stance against... The rule of capital you know he was even quoted as saying oh he won't go after the people that stole the commonwealth of the country he will just focus on you know how can you do that when did that those are the people that have full control of the country you know so these are the things and and again if we have a youth population that are not looking at the fundamentals but are only looking at the surface we end up having to deal with people you know that come up every electoral cycle when the contradictions are threatening to rent the system apart, and we end up getting worse over time, you know. So this is that critical juncture, again, where we are, where the system has part of a fail-safe mechanism. I call it will be a fail-safe
0: mechanism
2: <laughs> to ensure that the rule of capital maintains and, uh, you know, persists in the country, you know. I don't hide my bias. Like, I am more... A revolutionary person. I want to see a fundamental change in the system, and he is not the president. Because if Article had entered or gotten in, has been elected as the president, he will be the vice president. You know, and if you if you, you yeah. if you don't have any fundamental you know um, uh, opposition towards what Article was doing, and anytime you see them, you still extol their principles, you still see them as people to follow and go after. Then, what are you going to do? when you get there and that those are my those are the things that keep me up at night you know because this figure has reason to become one of the front line guys and it mm-hmm. means that once or if he gets to that place he's not going to do anything to ruffle the feathers of the the owners of the country and that worries me because they exist in an antagonistic relationship to the people mm-hmm. so if they're if they're okay then it means the people are in trouble yeah yeah so that's the thing. So that's my own addition to the to the um, to the lay, to the framework, you know, that um side has laid down. Because it's really important to look at the fundamentals and not just the surface. That oh, this guy is is out here, and he's the one we're supposed to follow, you know. So, and we need to educate people to look in other directions so that we have that fundamental change that we're seeking for. Mm.
0: On on the topic of, of fundamental change and educating people in that direction. Many would have thought, as you've both identified, that end SARS was this tipping point for Nigerian society, where the specific issue of police brutality was uh, carrying many different grievances. Mm -hmm. And this was going to provoke a radical break um, and that there would be changes, but two years since, that has not been the case. And if anything, uh, the masses of young people in Nigeria are embracing a candidate who's likely to bring more of the same. Um, and I, I lack psychoanalytic explanations. <laughs> that could be the case. But to try and maybe start to yeah. construct a sociological materialist one, to what extent does all of this do with the decline of class politics in Nigeria in the sense that the basis for collective political identity and organizing is is no longer class. Class Class-based organizations such as trade unions have been in decline. And in that atmosphere, the ways in which people then delineate political difference and articulate political conflict becomes identity because i'd i'd i'm you know i'm surprised well not surprised but one would think that the old kind of regional ethno linguistic tensions and divisions which have plagued nigeria would would not be as resonant for uh, cosmopolitan youth but Zaid, as you were mm. saying very in these repetitive cycles, it's usually the newest entrance into electoral politics who are swept up by it the most. So, could you maybe just walk us through you know, in this age of political demobilization uh, how Nigerians are making their politics um, and, and why is it yeah. always seem so far from class-based Articulations and explanations when the rea- in, in the everyday experience of reality that is manifest uh, the divides mm. in Nigerian society in Africa generally uh, are very clearly between you know rich and poor mm. with elites and the masses and you get inklings of that mm. um, but they always sort of collapse under the burden of political confusion in moments like this. When, yeah. when people the vocabulary um, or, or the the consciousness really to, to, to explain the fundamentals, as you were saying, OEG. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I probably would approach that two ways. I mean, one thing to say is that, I think part of what I was attempting to explain when I was talking about zoning is um, why OB initially got taken up by a segment of the media and political elite when he um, split away from broke away from the PDP, you know, so basically, he seemed viable to a lot of kind of elite power political brokers because we are in this kind of zoning climate. Um, Whereas why he seemed viable to younger people, I would agree with you that that probably has a little less to do overtly with the sort of ethno-regional or ethno-religious politics, um, but identity is c- still critical. There, it's just not the identity politics that we've come to be familiar with in, you know, various parts of Africa. In the absence or in the midst of the wider decline of, you know, the sort of, you know, in the, in the sort of period of the so-called end of history, right? In the midst of the wider decline of. Um, this sort of ideological or class-driven politics. I think the the interesting kind of identity politics at play um, that also ties the OB movement to NSARS is the question of generations that for some reason right now, mm. this discourse of youth um, seems to have much more political re- re- uh, resonance than it has for a while. And I mean there's an aspect of it that seems to gesture at the possibility of something different something new right because it's a sort of you know it is correct in its assessment that um the oligarchs of the apc and PDP are also happen to be in their 70s right also happen to be these sorts of gerontocrats um but i mean where it misses out is in believing that anyone who's not in that age bracket is sort of equally sort of uh, possible as an alternative or equally can, can it can be seen as a sort of possible alternative. Um, so that's why I think that you know the sort of identity politics of the moment um, have also as usual led us down a kind of blind alley. Um, but I think an important thing to clarify from the point of view of OB support base is that it's not actually clear outside of narrative um how much of a youth surge there really is in like mm. um in the voter roll or in sort of terms of who's collecting their voting cards I mean there's a lot of paradoxical information coming out and there's a suggestion that actually um the percentage of Eligible voters who fall under the age of 35 has actually declined since the previous election. You know, mm. so there hasn't been as much of kind of scrutiny around this question of the youth surge and you know youth determining the election outcome as as you would expect. And I think that points to a kind of um, media e- ecosystem that. Um, has not been very kind of skeptical, you know, has been kind of fairly one track minded. And um, that to me has a lot to do with, I mean, maybe wider question, something we can come back to uh, at another point, but the kind of increased role of Twitter and sort of online media and shaping electoral narratives um, as compared even to traditional media, you know? So there's this kind of unquestioned assumption that there really is some sort of new youth surge going on well in fact if you look at the numbers there might not be much of a different youth presence in this election as compared to the previous Um, so these are all kinds you know parts of the 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 equation in terms of um you know how uh, electoral allegiances are being um defined but you're certainly right that the question of class per se um has remained largely absent right in the in the equation here. And, you know, there, I think, you know, there's, there's a host of reasons why that's the case. And one of them is, you know, the decline really in, um, you know, as you say, working class political assertiveness, you know, and I think in Nigeria, this is, there's an even more specific trend that has had to do with um, a change of guard at the helm of, the major union centres um, in the past eight years, um, and the new leadership really having been a lot less adversarial towards the ruling party than we were used to seeing in the PDP years under the leadership of Adams O'Shomale you know, as the um, as the NLC president. Um, so, I mean, you know, a conversation about the, the Nigerian Labour Congress and the, the union centres. Um, is a is a lengthy one that kind of requires its own space. But I would just suggest that, in addition to the wider structural factor you've you've laid out, there's even maybe a global question of mm-hmm. of um, you know declining uh, union strength and such. We've had uh, much more specifically Nigerian dynamics going on with you know a kind of more contingent I think decline in um, this sort of uh, assertiveness of, of the nigerian labor congress which may change um but um has certainly also kind of set set the tone for the kind of politics we're seeing in this electoral cycle oh yeah
2: <laughs> i just have like you know a quote to puff that up you know it's that mm. the ideas or the ruling ideas are the ideas of a ruling class you know mm-hmm. that's what is making what we see in nigeria and that's what's that's what's at the backbone or that's what's at the core of what's going on because the stronger your ruling class gets and they infiltrate the superstructure of society then the class discourse starts Mm. to vaporize it starts to disappear it starts to get blurred out so you see that like nlc has been beaten into submission. Um, that lack of um skepticism on on um on the class lines on the role of the media it gets bl- like you don't see things like that anymore you don't even get to have um air time for people that are discussing different modes and ways of doing things you start to see people that are discussing this class um dynamics push to the fringes like you have to do a a strong work of research to hear alternative views. And again, when you have a society that has been concretized into a progressively backward, you know, um, state whereby you don't even have uh, any discussions along class lines, then you have youths that are growing up in that medium. So they grow up completely class unconscious. Mm. So you can be young and not even know that... There's a class war going on so every young person that looks like you that comes up and is somewhat close to the oppressors and can have air time and your air time will mm. be the person you go for and that's to me is one of the things that um bringing and cementing this will be phenomenon because if you know by the standing of this guy as to what you know he stands for what he's been doing you see that there's really i'm saying looking through the class prism you see that there's nothing fundamentally different you know so why is it that he's having so much you know support of the so-called youths again the ruling class is smart they put a bunch of you know um, figurehead youths in front of us you know (laughs) what if you look at the that is seeming to be the core of why this guy might have had the support of the so-called youth and the youth being disenfranchised what was his role in NSAS? he was largely absent from in fact there were accusations of him being you know involved in that akuzu uh, sas uh, i don't know like they were killing and dumping people in anambra that sas was doing you know so like we have to understand that when the ruling class is at the height of their power you 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 would see that discussions around class or education towards sharpening our senses towards class you know consciousness it gets pushed to the back and you never hear anything about it because that's the key of the matter and if we are educated in such lines we'll be able to make the proper decisions and see through their policies and manifestos as to how the thing is coming back to to hurt, you know, to hurt us. But now what you have is that useful energy without class directions, whereby it seems as if they're going back to sabotage themselves, and it's it's quite unfortunate because without the um, what would I say compass of class understanding or class consciousness, we wander in the in the forests, you know, not knowing the mm-hmm. direction to. Go towards, and um, I'd say that once again, one of the key factors that has pushed and that's even further maintaining this APC PDP guys, and even you mentioned the Labour Party, the Labour Labour Party, the NLC, they are all they've they've all transformed to be, um, what I say, appendages of of the ruling class control and their domain, such that even the uh, Labour Party can be used at will anytime they want to. You know, what does the Labour Party stand for? And who is mm. the candidate that is the flag bearer of the Labour Party? These are contradictions. Like, so what? He, what is he doing there mm. in a party that is supposed to be of socialist origins? You know, so these are the things that we must ask ourselves, you know. And we are looking, if we look at society from the base and the structure, we'll see that... The domination of the ruling class in even in our culture and what we talk about, mm. you see that there's an acute class war going on, but the people are largely insensitive or not being sensitized to what's going on. So, you know, so that's where the political mistakes in quotes come from. And you know, I think I'll I'll leave it at that for now.
0: Mm-hmm. On the on the on the matter of the people of Nigeria not being sensitized to class, who are those left political forces that can take up the mantle of that work in this election? We mentioned at the beginning of this conversation the AAC and the SDP, um, and I just want to know where are they located in this election? We also talk a little bit about the history of the african action congress in the last election in, in 2019 after also i would say a decent amount of hype for mm-hmm. its main candidates um, the performance was pretty dismal it was i think only yeah. three thousand votes cast in his favor and uh, seventh place finish are there any prospects that anac's performance this time around could be better um and is there is there consensus on on who the left candidate is because there was an article that was written for africa's uh, country by basil abia and it was called the case for labor party entryism in nigeria and the effective argument you know was an interest one saying that this surge uh, precipitated by Peter Obi's rise, could be an opportunity for the left to kind of reclaim the Labour Party. What What do you guys make of that argument? Um, mm. But to put the question more simply, who should the left back in this mm. election? To the extent that one can even speak of a unified Nigerian left. Mm. <laughs> Well, you see, that's that's where you've ended the question
1: is precisely the problem, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's very hard to speak of the unified, um, the unified Nigerian left. And if and if it was possible to to speak of that at some point, it's much harder now in this election cycle. You know, and the article you're referring to illustrates that. Um, that I think the emergence of Obi, w- one of the other things it's done is. Um, make kind of left political conversations a lot more tricky and probably a lot more divisive in this electoral cycle as well. Um, Because all of a sudden, you know, there's a kind of the various new possibilities, I mean, apparent possibilities that appear to have emerged on the scene with Peter Obi being there, that span from outright opportunity, opportunism where you say, no, let's just support. yeah, well, I mean, you know, I would say there's an opportunist entryism, which says mm-hmm. let's fold our banner under the, the Obi one because he's a more competent version of this thing. Or in fact, people will even say there's a possibility that he'll be different. You know, maybe he's. Emeka was jokingly saying this, but people say it more seriously that maybe he'll have a Damascus moment when he's elected and suddenly you know, turn out to be a closet social democrat. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, we we shouldn't take that seriously at all. Or you have, you know, people who are probably more like Basil, who say OB is uh, obviously, you know, a class enemy (laughs) and a neoliberal, (laughs) but um, this provides a kind of um, like tactical opportunity to go in there and you know yeah i guess mobilize workers and kind of radicalize the obedience and such but i mean yeah i guess you can already tell by the tone of my <laughs> intervention right now and previously that i just i don't find that to be all that compelling because you know he has the ticket right he's kind of in charge and it's it's very hard to sort of support the party but oppose their candidate right before yeah. an election you know it's just it's not how you'd actually go about doing that but there's there is a sort of segment of the left who buys that and then you have others who who you know just sickened by the spectacle have decided to sit out you know and and these people are I mean we shouldn't dismiss them entirely because a lot of them had been working very seriously for the past few years to actually Get some momentum going within the labor movement for a labor party, for an attempt to reclaim the labor party, basically. Um, So, I mean, having put all that work in in the last couple of years, that sort of segment of of, of the left is exhausted, and you know, it's you kind of see where they're coming from. Um, And then there there are the candidates, you know, that OEG has has pointed to the AAC candidate, Omoyele Shore, and also the SDP candidate. Um, I think show probably. I mean, OG will correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think <laughs> Shure has still um, a segment of the kind of radical student union crowd, and um, you know some of the younger, kind of newer, you know, leftist, so people who associate with kind of revolutionary politics in Nigeria. It's just that that demographic doesn't appear to be very large, um, Mm. right? So that that still forms, I think, the core of his movement, and it did in 2019. What has changed perhaps for him since 2019 is that, in 2019, he was also one of the figureheads of the kind of third force movement, you know, a more generic attempt to provide some alternative aside from the APC and PDP, which also included people like Obi Ezekwesili and um, Felad Durutoye, um, Kingsley. Kingsley Mogalu, these are some fairly mainstream, kind of liberal, kind of upper middle class candidates who, you know, kind of were all part of this conversation around providing an alternative. And amongst those people, already did the best in really?
2: 2019.
1: But now, with the emergence of Obi, I think the kind of third force energy right? The anything but APC and PDP energy has kind of been absorbed by Pitobi. So that circle that was around Shoah Ray um, that was kind of very diasporic, very urban, you know, just wanted something else has sort of evaporated and he's left now more so with I think the core of um, angry students, you know, <laughs> probably plus, you know, a few kind of radical intellectuals, um, you know, plus some allies in um, some particular, you know, unions. I think an important ally for AAC is um, the Federation of Informal Workers, um, yeah, F1. F1, which has uh, endorsed AAC. And then SDP, I mean, I think I understand slightly less their own, you um, social base i think it's much more it's a little more yeah oeg maybe you you correct this yeah he's that is a little more kind of intellectual yeah um, yeah a little more kind of middle class Mm -hmm. um and maybe a little smaller than than Mm -hmm. aac um i think another thing to say that oeg hinted at and then I'll, i'll pass the mic is aac has managed in this electoral cycle to um Negotiate a, mer- a merger or, or an alliance with the PRP, which actually is the oldest radical or left leaning party in Nigeria, um, because the PRP traces its origins back to the actually the pre independence movement. Um, but the PRP has also been, you know, like these other two, electoral marginal for most of the Fourth Republic. I mean, they have had one senator um I think and um yeah but they're also quite factionalized and the group that AAC has negotiated a merger with is not the faction that has PRP presidential candidate at the moment it's it's the rival faction to you know the one the one that that has put up their presidential candidate so I mean I guess all this to say there isn't a there isn't one clear choice for the left at the moment, unfortunately, mm. and yeah, it's the, neither are there very exciting choices, you know, amongst the ones that are left. Um, from my perspective,
2: I think the work um, or the thing that needs to be done is organizing from the ground up because that mm. we can't, we can we can't overlook that fact yeah everything needs to be built from the ground ground up because we've lived in such a long, dark age of total elite domination. And the new seeds of revolutionary consciousness or revolutionary formations, you know, will start from a humble um, you know um posture in a humble time like this. So everyone has to imagine something new. Everyone has to imagine building from the ground up because the more we lend our, um, you know, energy and give our voices to people that funnel the masses into an alley, a black or dark alley or blind alley of nothingness, the more we make the masses lose hope in whatever we're saying because we have to have our, our stance as clear as day, you know, like we need to build these things from the ground up the aac i'd say and all these other revolutionary parties that have stuck to principles and ideology they're the ones that deserve the airtime that the ones that deserve for us to gather around and build unfortunately the left in nigeria is is, um, is splintered it's not you know there's no one umbrella that you can have and say oh this is the left you know that has led to that um, lack of organization and lack of coalescing around the most revolutionary of candidates, you know, that kind of thing. And it's what has been pulling the left effort back. In, mm. And with Obi in the um, shell of Labour Party, it has also provided that um, mm. that dis- disturbance or would I say, yeah. Uh, what, what, distraction, yeah that's provided that distraction and the left is conjuring up ways of using uh, Labour Party as a shell and Obi as someone that has now brought the camera back to Labour Party and then to action, you know, when we know that, even the Labour Party, we spoke to someone in the Labour Party, Ayo, I don't think, um, uh, I think you remember, um, Saeed, I spoke to Ayo Ademelui and he told us that essentially, the Labour Party has been kind of taken over by these people and they kicked him out because he's one of the revolutionary candidates that I was supposed to go as a senatorial um as a senatorial uh, candidate for a local government. And they kicked him. Say I not. think they kicked him out of the yeah, they kicked him out of the party because you know they for for anti party for anti-party stance or anti-party authorities. Yeah.
1: I so mean in fact, like,
2: he won yeah, his on. primary race.
1: Under the Labour Party in mm. Lagos, but he was denied the ticket by the National so, Labour Party, which is dominated by OB.
2: So mm. this is this is what we are talking about. This is the same Labour Party that some leftists think would be the vehicle to progress or to be the vehicle to ballot revolution. So if we are not honest with ourselves to start saying that look, we have to build from the ground up, no matter how mm. Um, you know, weak it might look, no matter how uh, unorthodox it might look, then well, I don't think we'll start anything new. I don't think we'll get to anything new. We must learn to build, organize from the ground up, so that whatever thing, even if it's one thousand people we have, we know, okay, yeah, this is this one thousand core people that understand what we are going, and then we can build from that top. Because if we keep hopping and jumping up and down, you know, this is ob- what, what if another party comes, and then you know, someone moves to somewhere, and then is this how they left to just keep going up and down without any notion of of you know historical duty and the time that is going. You know, so these are the things that we have to figure out and know that, look, we must stand at a point, plant our feet on that solid ground, deepen the roots and move from there. So the parties that tend to have revolutionary um, promises, promises, those are the ones that we stick to build with them and know that, OK, we are on the same political wavelength and go further from there. That's it. It's not compulsory that we get in as the president or get in. A, but when we start building and slowly making those steps to concretizing, you know, or sealing the progresses that we made or the progress that we made, then it's okay by me, really. It's about conscientizing the people. And once again, I'd say the people that have the ideology are the ones that need the air, the airtime, you know, because we've heard it all from these guys and they keep saying the same thing, but we need a fresh perspective injected into the minds
0: and the consciousness of the people.
2: You know, so that's it.
0: So it's, it's, it's almost like, this election is a distraction. And this is not just the idea of using elections to build working class power, but given that the left is so weak, I did the possibilities of it being able to produce a viable electoral platform, uh, the chances were slim from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So thinking, thinking beyond the election, I mean, just to set it aside for the moment, It'll come, it'll go, we'll see who wins, and based off of that, we can expect a continuation of uh, the liberal program. In fact, actually, maybe I shouldn't assume that, and I should ask what do you guys anticipate will be the economic strategy pursued by uh, the possibly the possible winning candidates, but assuming it will be more of the same. Mm-hmm. what? What should the program for the rebuilding of the Nigerian left look like? Uh, what, at the moment, are the primary concerns of the Nigerian people, and and what should the what should the left response to that be in in, in, in the immediate term and in the long term? You know, we're, we're quite far from a revolutionary situation. I, I think we could we can admit. Um, but yeah. what, <laughs> yeah. what, should, what should the what should the strategy for for reforms be in Nigeria at the moment, given the many concerns that Nigerian people have, ranging from you know economic to security, uh, so on and, and so forth.
2: Um, mm-hmm. Let me just let me go through that before Saeed mm-hmm. answers. You know, I once again we can't throw away the value of electoral organisation. Mm-hmm. I sure. see this election as a way of organising the people and you know, how we identify ourselves as, okay, yeah, you, you're here, you're here, you stand politically on this um, spectrum, let's come together and coalesce and form something even after the elections. So that's one of the values of the election. It, it, it helps us to organize ourselves and then form, you know, an umbrella where we can come together and look for a plan forward. Of course, one of the major pressing issues to the Nigerian people is the economy and um, insecurity, you know, so if with this election, if by chance we have one or two people that are getting from one of the revolutionary parties, you have to show and prove to the people how you're going to be different from the so-called guys that you're fighting against. Because if you're lucky enough to have one part, that's the way, because I know Nigerians you know, are people that like to see things done. When you, when you talk to them and say, oh, um, Shoray, why do you want to become the president? You've never been there before. How will you get it? You're going to start from local government, mm. chairman and all that. You know? So I think one of the things that the left can do is try to get in and you know get one person to maybe have one seat or the other. And then when you have that stage, try to show how fundamentally different you are because we have to understand our people and what they react to. We can't be all abstract. We can't be speaking our, you know, revolutionary jargon in our books. How do we show and prove to people? We have to organize in communities. We have to connect with their daily struggles, you know, be the little one for the fixing of the road or the ones with electricity tariff or the one with the petroleum crude price, all these kind of things. Like we have to understand um, that you have to meet the people where they are and drag them along towards, you know, the revolution be with them towards you know the revolution so it means organizing even if it's through you know communities like we spoke uh, one time we make myself myself side where we could use the community organizations these lcds you know as points where we could coalesce meet with people you know fight for their you know um rights and pressing concerns and then move forward you know um expose these political ideas and show them what you know Um, the left really stands for, you know. So I think that has been lacking, but that should be done because you really never see these community organizations, you know. And the more we do that, the more we connect with the people, the more we have their ears, the more they can follow us, you know. So I think that's a major thing that should be done. Economy is really important to the people and we have to show and prove that this is what we are about, you know. So that's important. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I might add to that is just to say that i mean the outcome of the election is uh, the I, I would agree with oeg the process of participating and attempting to organize for these various left groups and forging new coalitions and stuff is you know is, is important even if it doesn't lead to victory immediately right mm-hmm. so i think for instance the aac's um coalition with the prp could be important in the long run if it means that this allows the AAC to develop a new base outside of the kind of student union circles um, and into, say, urban or um, even rural, like informal and working sectors in northern Nigeria, which is where the PRP has historically drawn its base. So I think that would be very important, even if um, not, not sort of significant enough to result in a victory this time around. Um, I think another thing I would add is, in addition to the process, the outcome of the election will, I think, shape the terrain that the left has to operate on, right? I mean, it's true that we're likely to get kind of slight variations on the underlying theme of continued privatization and, you know, we're likely to even get the um, liberalization of nigeria's currency which is something that has been fought back by even the sort of neoliberal ruling class for the last couple of decades like they've more or less resisted fully liberalizing the currency but we're well, now at the tipping point it seems for that uh, as well as the subsidy which is another kind of um thorny issue that has been a kind of red line um but i think the sort of nigerian workers and the popular sectors, you know, have managed to kind of resist, um, but we seem to be at a tipping point. So these will be fairly um, substantial changes to the texture of everyday life in Nigeria if we do get a liberalized currency and the petroleum subsidy entirely removed. And that will mean that life becomes even more difficult for a lot of Nigerians in the cities particularly, but even, I mean, at the countryside, if we're talking about currency. Um, I think that presents quite a challenge for the left, because, I mean, of course, we will be dealing with the same problems as well, right, of getting around in the context of more expensive petroleum, of dealing with weaker currency. Um, But it also presents an opportunity in pointing out um, the inability of, you know, these folks in the main parties, and now this is kind of for third party to actually deliver um, meaningful changes to the lives of ordinary Nigerians, I think the case will be even stronger if it's a Labour Party government. Here, maybe I'm being um, I mean going, you know, further uh, in reading a crystal ball than I really can. Right? Um, it's another skill set I like in addition to psychoanalysis. <laughs> um, I think that if we get a Peter Obi government, part of what that helps do for us is delegitimize the argument the kind of framing of the argument where it's kind um where it's sort of incompetent gerontocrats versus competent young guys right because if you get a technocratic p 2 government that also continues to make life miserable for people you know which it appears he's likely to do if he's if he implements the manifesto he's proposed then I think at least discursively, I mean, it, it puts the left in a position where we can make a clearer argument, you know, for what differentiates the left alternative from, you know, these guys. That is not simply a matter of age or quote unquote competence, but it's also about what you are proposing to do around the economy. Of course, that's not a, that's not a sort of outcome. That's not a desirable outcome, right? That we, now
2: the people suffer
0: first. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I didn't know you were an
0: accelerationist. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I, only, only when you push me to the wall to consider you know, the future that, that we can't see, mm-hmm. right? But it, it certainly isn't a desirable outcome. But you know, if it's where we are likely to be, which seems to be the case, you know, irrespective of outcome, you know, with the three main candidates on the ballot anyway, um, then it's not the, the left should actually, you know. See, divide rhetorical and practical um, strategies to respond to that, right? We shouldn't sit back and pretend like we can't see these trends shaping out. Um, so these, you know, these are some of the kind of, I guess, preliminary considerations around what we would do. Um, but it's really hard to tell, because of course, it really crucially depends on how the election plays out, I think. Mm,
0: and I mean, I know you, you just, underrated your crystal ball skills, but the <laughs> conjuncture we're heading into as you've described um, in Nigeria, and I also think globally uh, the, the prospects are oblique um, the the terrain is going to get much harder and the two of you wouldn't mind just giving a, a quick explanation of these planned reforms both including the liberalization of the Naira and um, the petroleum uh, subsidies and, and taxes, but uh, it, c- could we anticipate another wave of popular mobilization on the scale of NSA's or Occupy Nigeria? Or is that something that we'd have to wait and see? Um, because mm. it just seems like social pressures are going to keep accumulating and, you know, the election or elections are always a bit of a of a, of a release valve that kind mm-hmm. of gives respite to that but then people quickly kind of realize the extent to which life keeps hardening and and that always sets things off um or is 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 the is the prevailing mood exhaustion at least now mm. yeah it's a good question uh, yeah would you, you want to attempt it? I
2: think what we have, especially with this age of Twitter and social media, you know, there's, there are two realities in the country the one on the ground and the one on the social media space. Of course, the social media space has grown significantly, but what you have is a bunch of class unconscious youths directing the people and expending and wasting their energy on choices that are not even revolutionary and it's sad if, if you look at the NSAS, you know there were the cool guys that were you know dancing having fun and all that and when the police came and shot and killed people the, revo- the real revolutionary guys came out after that day in 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 you know i'm talking about the poor people that were ready to defend their communities but the the other elites and the middle class guys boom everybody disappeared you know so we we've had this betrayal of the people on the ground and i'd say the people are tired they are mm. very well adapted to enduring their fate but now when the policies starts eating at your dollar or start eating at your naira in your bank because you've saved, you know, like your one million, your two million, and then it's becoming valueless. The man that's already enduring his, um, his nonsense in quote life on the streets can't afford three square meals. He's not too worried, he's already used to that life. So it's the middle class again that's been wasting the time of the people, you know. So, how do they come together and form that alliance? You know, Kuti says this all the time. It's it's the professionals of the country that are the problem. It's the professionals that are the ones that are causing the problem. It's the middle class people that are witnessing a sunset. The sun is setting on their on on their mm. good life. You know, mm. with this you, downward sinking, you know, the destruction of the economy and that sharpening of you know that 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 destruction of the in-betweens, you know, so. How do we ensure that they have that revolutionary look? How do we ensure that they don't waste the people's time? Is of course, again, building the left, making sure that we are where we're supposed to be. Because if there's no organized left, is there, if there's no organized program, yeah, if there's no organized program to direct the people to where they're supposed to be, I think the contradictions will just you you will keep on having a meltdown. And it's unfortunate that we are learning through hardship because mm-hmm. nigeria had you know like some of uh, the forefront uh, leftists that at least if our history has been preserved we are able to pull from what they did and their struggles you know the zikis that we always talked about like if we're able to read and understand we'll see that there's a pathway already that we can follow and build upon but unfortunately the rule of these guys have not only destroyed the economy, it's destroyed the education, it's destroyed the people's mind. And then we're so culturally, like in Gramsci's um, view, when he said uh, something about cultural hegemony, you know, we are so culturally subservient to these guys. We can't picture anything that's different from elite rule. We can't picture anything that is, you know, wind off these guys and creation of something new for ourselves. And it's unfortunate that we are at that position now. You know, that we can't even, you know, come up with organic solutions to our own problem. And it's damning to the so-called progressive or front thinkers or most exposed guys that we have on Twitter that think they know everything. It's that they just keep on wasting the people's time. And um, it's going to be unfortunate because when when the powder keg blows up, they are the first to be consumed by... The outrage of the masses on the ground that they've left unattended to, you know. So that's just one of the dynamics of what might happen and what's co- what what's currently going on, you know, in the political realm. You know, I hope there's that connection between the middle class that's going through it now and the people that have already been the wretched of the earth on the ground already.
1: Well, yeah. you know, I might take a slightly different approach to OAG, and um, I mean, this may be goes to a sort of standing disagreement we might have on this issue. Um, <laughs> but is that, I don't, you know, okay, so I think I, I had two questions that you posed there. Well, one is, you know, is the situation bound to get worse with these new policies? And can we expect some kinds of mass mobilization if we do see a worsening of the economic situation? I guess, to um, so the first question I would say, it depends where you're sitting, right? Economically. Like so, you know, OG seems to be suggesting that, um, if I'm hearing you correctly, that it's very likely that we will have like this sort of m- middle class bear a huge brunt of you know economic the economic policies that are very likely to come down the pike in terms of um you know the, the very likely removal of the petroleum subsidy and currency devaluation um or liberalization as they like to call it um you know there I'm not sure i th- I think that the result could be mixed in terms of like how the middle class absorbs this stuff right um because I mean they have part of you know I think this is the sort of aspect of the conversation we, we might not have had enough time to get into but I think part of another aspect of what has driven um, NSARS and even and even this kind of obedient wave is a sense that the you know opportunities for social mobility within uh, kind of provided to middle class youth have been somewhat diminished under the Buhari regime and they associate this with his slightly more economically nationalist orientation, right? So they'll say that it's because Buhari was... um, Closing the borders. Exactly. Less liberal with border border (laughs) policy than the PDP people. Or Buhari was giving out handouts, you know, in the form of cash transfers. Or because um, you know, his government did some quite terrible but, um, you know, some attempts to manage the decline of the Naira, right? To defend the Naira. So, you know, all of these are part of the package of policies that a lot of these middle-class youth believe are part of the, what's kind of restricting their own social mobility. So if you see these- They call it
2: socialism of, at times.
1: Right, they even call him social, you know, <laughs> you some forums where people refer to Boari as socialist. And we need to move past this kind of socialist um, economy, in their view, towards one where they can actually have a much more enabling environment for startups and um, cryptocurrency and this sort of thing, right? So I can see a world in which this demographic actually welcomes the kinds of policies, certainly that OB is proposing, but also even that uh, Atiku or Tinobu might put in place from the point of view of slightly more liberal approaches to currency management, less of that kind of old school nationalist with tinges of statism. That you've seen in the Buhari period, right? But so, you know, I think it's not necessarily the middle class that will feel the brunt of this as much. I mean, and we're using these kinds of terms slightly imprecisely, so you bear with us, you know, there. But I would say that it's in the sectors of the economy where you've seen the most suffering anyway during this period, right? In the countryside, particularly. And amongst informal workers in in the cities, Um, because that's where the sort of shock of the um, subsidy removal is most immediately felt, right? Um, And I would say that we are already seeing quite massive um, upheavals resulting from this economic situation, right? Not in the form of the NSARS or Occupy, you know, in terms of people kind of carrying placards on the streets or um, coming up with a hashtag, but in forms that are much less palatable, but also, you know, similarly as much of a kind of critique of the status quo. When we see the rise of these kidnapping cells in the countryside, you know, when we see the continued sort of existence and even growth of Boko Haram, spread of Boko Haram in, in some Um, new areas of the country, when we see the rise of these ethno-nationalist movements in the countryside. Obviously, these aren't forms of um, resistance to the status quo that are very conducive to left politics, at least Mm -hmm. not, you know, like ethno-nationalism and and, and Boko Haram. There are debates, though, about the bandits, uh, so we can can leave that aside for the moment. But, I mean, um, these are nonetheless, I think, popular responses to the economic decline and if we continue to see you know the sort of loosening of the few kinds of gains i, I think that um paradoxical as they may be the working people have won over the course of the last de- couple of decades i think it's very likely that we'll see an intensification of those forms of um protest
0: and resistance right um, mm. even if we don't see uh, occupy or answers mm. sure okay there's there's a lot to say to that um yeah. That the first thing is, is I think, yeah, the moment is throwing up this interesting strategic and theoretical question for the left, not just in Nigeria, but globally about what is the role of the middle class, especially mm. since I think this dynamic is objectively present of you've got capitalism that's stagnating with opportunities for social upward mobility dwindling. Mm. and you have a middle-class feeling that squeeze, but given that the middle-class traditionally has never played an agitating role in politics, they're articulating those demands for the sunset on their good life to be postponed mm. for the horizon <laughs> and, and in ways. Um, and the question that I, I, I hear you asking, OAG, is, is there potential there in spite of the no. class location of the middle class? Can a case for them to be mobilized for political alternatives that redistribute wealth from those who hoard who hoard it um, and for a good life to be offered to everyone? Is there potential to to persuade them to more collective forms of resistance rather than individual forms of resistance or or survival or endurance, which is something we see in South Africa, you know, in South Africa, life is in in a scale never witnessed before becoming intolerable for for Mm middle-class South Africa. Things that the majority of South Africans, working-class South Africans, Black South Africans have experienced for decades, such as intermittent access to electricity, water, and basic social services, and now being felt by the middle class, but um, Mm now, They're doing. They're pursuing individual strategies. They're opting out of state provision. Yeah. They're going off the grid. Yeah. Mm.
2: Solar panels. Yeah. Keep squeezing that, yourself up.
0: Right? Exactly. All of that. Um, the debate we're having here, as well as well, could we is is are there sections of this middle class that we could appeal to, especially the remnants of 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 movements that are like that are not unlike NSARS, such as mm. these Muslims. From for radical youths who have now been absorbed into the labor market and are working, you know, service corporate jobs, um, trying to climb up the ladder, but realizing that the ceiling has been cemented. Um, yeah, mm. That's one point, right? And then the, the other point is this, what you're saying now about um, ferment in the countryside, um, you know, is what I'm hearing you giving is kind of a, a, a materialist explanation for, or rising um, insecurity issue in, in the countryside. Yeah. It's almost, is, is, it, is it the same dynamic, but in the inverse where basically people's options are dwindling and the paths you have to effectively make a living, provide for your family, feel rooted in, in community or, or whatever, um, are, are becoming more and more uh, extreme, at least depending on where you're located. and and what is yeah what is what is the left's response to, mm. to insecurity um to the rise of Boko Haram yeah. to the the, the the increasing threats that a lot of uh, rural communities face um yeah right, yeah it's, if if a left were to be in power that is something it's mm. going to have that's it's going to have to deal with um and of course we'd want more than a You know a militaristic solution but what what is an alternative approach
1: yeah i mean absolutely i'll I'll come to the question of insecurity and the left in a moment but i mean just maybe to shed more light on what i was trying to get at there you know that conversation about the middle class i think yes i mean overall um the quality of life in nigeria and sort of possibility of social mobility has declined in general but i think there has been a bit of a jump for some people in this con- in the cities um, in the past 20 years um, in Nigeria. And I think this is the debate that OEG and I kind of go back and forth about um, yeah. a lot. And it's because in Nigeria, you know, sort of I think not, not probably acknowledged by a lot of us on the left, honestly, in Nigeria is the fact that there was a period of you know, what the World Bank was referring to as impressive economic growth in Nigeria mm-hmm. between 2002 and, and 2014, thereabouts, right, before the oil price crash. And that period gave us, like, you know, dramatic expansion in Nollywood. I mean, the birth of, like, to some extent, the birth of these places like Lekki, you know, um, where you had the, um, the, you know, it's one of the epicenters of the protest. protests. Um, and they kind of, it, swell, it swelled the ranks of the kind of parts of the gig economy that are more tech-fueled and, you know, the, the, basically the ranks of people who can afford cell phone minutes to be on the internet tweeting, you know, and all that, right? So mm-hmm. it wasn't stable, like, they haven't been sort of accorded a stable, you know, sort of wrong on the ladder, so to speak, right? It's a very tenuous... um, Climb. A climb, exactly. Um, But that has happened. And I think in the Buhari period, that has been stalled for various reasons, or maybe even slightly declined. So there's, there's the hope within that demographic that that climb, which, by the way, was producing a lot of inequality, would be... Um, restarted, not through a fundamental transformation of the economy where wealth is more fundamentally redistributed, but just that, you know, where we return to a kind of more stabilized growth, um, you know, which can see, you know, this group of people kind of cement their positions in the middle class that are kind of nascent, right? So I think that um, it's not a story of kind of Generalized decline. I think it's actually a story of unequal distribution. You know, in this period, um, where some have, particularly in the, in the countryside, have seen their um, livelihoods dramatically drop, and people in the cities have seen a, mo- a moderate improvement to some extent. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think this partially accounts for the the kind of contradictions we've seen in the past few years. Where um, you know, the, the, in, and, and the differences in the way that urban people have responded to the Buhari um, administration as compared to the countryside where, you know, as I was saying, there has been quite a dramatic rise in insecurity. The question of how the left will deal with this is, um, I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll be interested in hearing OG's take, but it's something that I don't think the left has really parsed sufficiently enough in Nigeria. It's you know, partially been kind of deferred because you're like, we can critique what's happening, um, and you know, we can maybe start to come up with a concrete answer if we ever get to power. But since we're in the margins, well, I mean, does it matter? Um I guess I've heard one or two like slightly more promising takes in the midst of the electoral period where parties have been trying to put forth their manifestos and stuff. So you've heard from AAC, for instance, much more of a statement around looking for political solutions, right? Rather than just continuing to order more um, fighter helicopters or, you know, trying to deploy more troops. You've also heard, you know, more talk around um, looking for more kind of community led and um, kind of local uh, initiatives and trying to strengthen them. And I think fundamentally you've also heard the question of insecurity brought back into the economic Domain to say that look, this has happened not simply because people are fundamentally violent in those places, or because you know of religion or whatever the case might be, but partially because livelihoods have dramatically def- declined. And you know, I think you know, I, there have been some optimistic conversations or some kind of inspiring conversations, anyway, around um, you know how real, you know, serious. Uh, approaches to transforming the economy can have an impact on um, the security situation in the countryside. Definitely not at the level that um, we would desire. And um, it definitely, I don't think, has had the social influence that we would want. But the conversations, I think, are, have, have been happening. And the election, in some ways, has contributed to that as well.
2: Yeah. Um, all this um, plethora of ideas that you've mentioned, I've actually heard from a lot of left uh, bodies or organizations discussed that you know from the economic one to organizing mm-hmm. communities to ensuring that you know people are even looking out for themselves at, you know on community levels you know that's really important you know again these political economic decisions of the ruling class foments these um problems that we're having and To me, they are the root causes of, you know, the problem that we're having in terms of insecurity. And again, there's only so much you can do without having power, you know. So most of those um, left bodies don't seem to dive deeply into it, you know, understandably. But again, we have to ensure that organization comes first. If you organize the people and you get to hear from them, organic solutions will come out you know, and then we'll see what the problems of the community, what the problems are, and then how we can solve them pending the time, you know, where we get to power and all, you know, but this is very important. And again, it still goes back to that absence of a unified left front. If there's a unified left front, we can know where to channel resources, the weakest links to break of the ruling class and how to make the most of our impact felt in any of these communities. So we don't have that. We don't even have like, you know, a left coalition that I know of, of maybe kind of responding to crisis in neighborhoods to endear people towards us. I don't think there's something like that, you know? There isn't. So yeah, like, so there are a lot of things that need to be done. I wouldn't sit up here and say, I know everything or you have all the what. By interacting, organizing ourselves, and interacting with the people, that back and forth um, interaction solutions will come out, from, come out from it, and then we can even implement that when, mm-hmm. by chance, we get into power. So that's it. Like I really don't have like that crystal ball, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, that psychoanalytical thing to do now. But I think you, you forming our base with the people, are interacting with them, will often yield tangible solutions that we'll be surprised of, you know, that. Give us lasting solutions.
0: Mm. So I think I think to conclude in the discussion, um, which which has been fantastic, uh, my gratitude to both of you for <laughs> to use your phrase OG, for, for the unconscious youth of Nigeria. <laughs> what, well, what can people read and listen to? To stay informed on Nigerian politics, that does dozen paper over the class contradictions. Mm. Other, other, <laughs> uh, call the Nigerian down, which uh, you should tell folks about. But you know what? What other outlets, publications besides Africa as a country? Can I say? Uh, should people be be checking out? You know, The Republic is also another great outlet that um, I check from time to time. But you know, the Nigerian media landscape as as you were saying earlier also, Saeed, um, which we parked and we don't have too much time to unpack right now, but it's it's its own monster and and that's yeah. the the digital landscape, just the, the Nigerian Twitter is 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 deserves its own deep anthropological study. Mm. Um, we recently published an article on on the strange dynamics that are a foot over there but if you want to break through all of the noise and get to something that tells it like it is what what is out there
1: mm-hmm.
2: side you want to go through that first yeah, <laughs> yeah I, can, I can try yeah. it's,
1: it's a tricky one actually because um yeah i don't know that we have yet managed to cover um a lot of alternative media spheres i mean you've mentioned our own small, um, you know, often more cathartic initiative at uh, Nigerian's camp. Where,
0: <laughs> They're always <right>? cathartic. <laughs> um,
1: we, we try to put things in, in class and ideological terms in the form of a podcast. There's also um, some uh, websites that are run by, you know, various left organizations in Nigeria, the Socialist Workers League, um, org. I think, you know, they run a kind of, critical newspaper and um socialist labors and other occasionally the pieces on Nigeria and the rope uh review of African political economy blog and you know of course the journal itself. Um and you know actually yeah from time to time um Sahara Reporters which is uh you know kind of I think was founded by Shore even um yeah. will put out you know, kind of critical pieces of news. Although I think the sort of quality of our reporters is something that has, um, you know, been debated over time. It doesn't always, I think, um, yeah, reach the sort of highest levels of, of what we mm-hmm. might desire. You know, but um, yeah, I mean, these are these are some places I go, and um, I, d- I don't know that they're fully satisfying. And you know, one hopes mm-hmm. that in the next few years we see um, a much richer landscape. Um, but that's the, that's the, that's the kind of picture as far as I'm aware of it. Yeah. What do you think?
0: Yeah I, yeah, I
2: think first and foremost, if you're a youth and you're listening to this and you know that something is wrong with your country, you need to open your mind and know that you need to read and you can get that from books. Mm. Books really help. Like it wasn't as if, uh, we were born with this knowledge and all that, you know, you just pick one book mm-hmm. and then you're saying, Oh, this is explaining the condition I'm inside of, wow. A book that did that for me was um the Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon. Especially, I think the third chapter, that pitfalls of national consciousness, I say it all the time. It's one that describes the African ruling class. It describes to the T, the Nigerian ruling class. You try to understand the nature of your ruling class and then you know what's, what's in it for you. And the kind of plans that they have you you know according to the framework which they operate a lot of websites too you know you can check out like um what's it called there's marxist.org you can check that out you have a lot of articles you can read check out cabral he's very very good that's one of my favorite revolutionaries from africa he explains the class contradictions you know and how to progress It describes the ruling class you know um i used to think um you know i used to kind of be with people from socialist workers league too i think i'm with their affiliations with i'm also with um the movement for african emancipation you can check them out too they're on twitter they put out a lot of things you can check their website out too um yeah like just open your mind to reading when you Open your mind, you start to understand how things are, what the framework of capitalism is in Nigeria, what it does to the to the people, especially the middle class, because i'm I, I'm guessing, and I know that it's the middle class that can listen to podcasts or have internet time. The poor man is already in the street, you know, hustling for the daily bread, you know so just try to read and put aside all these distractions you know for a while like all these comedy skits and all it's really not helping because you're probably running your generator to listen to this now you know that kind of thing (laughs) so you just have to be serious you have to be serious with your you have to be serious with your liberation so because there's this there's this aspect that i found that helped helped me personally you know i like to say when you know the kind of problem you're inside of it fortifies you mentally so all this mental weakness that goes out of the window because you know what's to come. You're not enduring. You're not enduring your condition now. You know how to sidestep some things, and you know the seriousness of what's at hand. So try to read, brace your mind up, open your mind, and be the best that you can. That's very important, you know. So I'll leave it at that.
0: And I can't think of a, of a better note to listen to, Saeed OEG, Thanks mm. for coming through.
2: Thank you. Thanks,
0: yeah and you our listeners thank you very much for checking out this episode you're listening to the africa's a country podcast which is a weekly venue for analysis and discussion on current affairs from an african perspective and on african events and topics from a left perspective episodes out every week subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts follow africa's a country on facebook instagram twitter youtube we're not on TikTok yet. I hope we're never on TikTok.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, avoid it. Head over to africasacountry.com to check out new writing and stay tuned for the next one. Bye bye.
1: Thanks for that.
0: Bye. Ciao.